How is your self-image these days? Do you feel good about yourself? You know, I think everyone agrees that a good self-image is important. And uh, to get a feel for current attitudes about it, I Googled it. I uh, quickly decided that I didn't have time to read 62 million hits on self-image, even with a high-speed connection. So I'm going to settle for a parable that was told by Jesus some 2,000 years ago to find out what I need to know about a good self-image in the 21st century. The parable is the one we commonly call the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. In it we see two men standing before God. One feels good about himself, the other doesn't. One has a good self-image, the other despises himself. And the lesson we learn from the parable is that what's most important about a good self-image isn't whether or not we have one, but how we get one. Do we exalt ourselves or do we let God do it? We're studying in the 18th chapter of Luke's gospel, ready for verses 9 through 12. And he also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, it's not clear to whom Jesus addressed this parable. Luke simply notes that he told it to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, since the first one he mentions is a Pharisee, we generally assume the parable was addressed to them. And that may be the case. But might it not have been addressed to certain ones among his own disciples who also thought themselves to be righteous? After all, he did choose them. Isn't it possible that some of those chosen to be fishers of men might have started thinking themselves better than ordinary fishermen? I think it is. But whether he had in mind some of his own disciples or the Pharisees who had been challenging him, we do know the type of person he's addressing. He's addressing anyone who might think he had achieved righteousness on his own and who viewed others with contempt. And those two things do go together. Anyone who trusts in himself that he's righteous credits himself for what he's achieved. He's proud of his moral accomplishments, of how far he's come. And the natural result of that is contempt 
for those who haven't achieved what he has achieved. You know, if you could do it, there's no reason they couldn't do it. They just didn't try hard enough. We see this being played out all the time. Who's, who's hardest on those who are overweight or on smokers? Isn't it those who've lost weight and quit smoking? You know, if we give ourselves credit for our accomplishments, it's very easy to blame others for their faults and their failures. So just having a good self-image, feeling good about yourself, doesn't guarantee that you'll feel good about others or that you'll love your neighbor. And I'm sure that we've all heard that we can't love our neighbor as ourself if we don't first love self. And there may be an element of truth in that. But loving self is no guarantee that we will love our neighbor. In fact, if we're not careful, it might make it harder. It just depends on how and why we started loving self. It's possible to love self and still hold others in contempt. And Jesus is addressing those who do so in a parable. A parable that focuses on two believers who went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Now, the Pharisee was a very religious man on the top rung of the religious ladder. He was a member of a sect known for rigid discipline and exacting faithfulness to the law. If anything, he was faithful to a fault. The other man was a tax gatherer, a publican. He was on the bottom of the ladder. He was a Jew who sold out to the Romans. A man who bought the right to tax fellow Jews and live off what he could extort from his own people. Publicans were despised by the Jews. They were the outcasts of religious society. Well, these two men are in the temple at the same time. And Jesus begins with a look at the Pharisee. Now, we must be careful not to assume the worst about Pharisees. We've been conditioned by the conflicts some of them had with Jesus to think that they're all hypocrites, that they're bad people. But in many ways, they were the best of the best. They were the cream of the religious crop. And every synagogue was proud of its faithful Pharisees. They were the members you could count on to do their part. And most were sincere in their faith. I even think the man in this parable may have been sincere. He wasn't putting on a show in the temple. He wasn't loud and boisterous with his prayer. It wasn't orchestrated to bring attention to himself. Apparently, it wasn't even the regular time for prayer. No crowd is mentioned, just the two of them. And he was praying to himself. Now, some 
make more out of that phrase than I think was intended and suggest that he really was praying to himself. That while he may have addressed God in passing, that he was in reality just talking to himself. And it is true that sometimes prayers really aren't communications with God. They are soliloquies directed to ourselves or even sermons prepared for a captive audience. But I don't think the Pharisee was simply talking to himself here. No. What did I say? But I don't think the Pharisee was simply talking to himself here. And there's no evidence that he was praying to be heard by an audience. I think he was just praying to himself. He was praying silently and not out loud. And I think he may have been sincere that he was praying from his heart. You know, when he said, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, I think he meant it. He was truly thankful that he wasn't like other men. He wasn't a swindler. He was meticulous in his dealing with others. He wasn't unjust. He tried to be fair in everything. He wasn't an adulterer. He didn't yield to sexual temptation. He wasn't weak-willed. He kept himself under control. He knew the law and followed it, even if he didn't feel like it. And he wasn't even like that tax gatherer that he spotted over in the corner. He'd been faithful to his own people. He wasn't a turncoat. He didn't live off extorted taxes. He was thankful for what he wasn't. When he looked around and compared himself to others and what they did, he could see that he was better than most, and he was thankful for it. I believe he was sincere in his thanks. He sincerely thanked God that he wasn't like other men. And he wasn't like other men simply because he didn't do what they did. He wasn't like other men because of what he did do. He fasted twice a week. Most Jews only fasted once a year. He intentionally went without food two days a week. And he did it to demonstrate his piety, to prove to God, to others, and to himself that he could control his appetites. And he tithed everything. He made certain God got 10% of everything he produced, even the herbs in his garden. He did much more than the law required. He did more than any man or even God himself expected. He felt good about himself. He had made something of himself. He had worked hard. He had made sacrifices. And in doing so, he exalted himself above others. He was proud of what he had become. And he was sure that God was too. But was he? Let's finish the parable, verses 13 and 14. But the tax gatherer, 
standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The second man in the temple was a tax gatherer, a publican, a Jewish man who collected public revenues on behalf of the hated Romans. He didn't stand in a prominent place in the temple. He stood some distance away, away from others, probably off in a corner somewhere. He knew what he was. And even though he had come to the temple to pray, He couldn't look God in the face. He wouldn't even look up. He knew who he was and what he was doing. He was legally extorting taxes from his fellow believers, and they hated him for it. He had sold out his own people and his religious heritage for financial gain, and he felt really bad about it. Notice, however, that he doesn't confess any of it. He knew it. And he knew God knew it. So he saw no need for public confession or even a press conference to admit his guilt. Instead, he beat his breast. The guilt was eating him up. It was tearing him up inside. And he knew there was nothing he could do to make up for the life he had lived And the choices he had made. So he simply asked for mercy. He pleaded, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And notice he didn't call himself a sinner. He called himself the sinner. He saw himself as the chief of all sinners. If there was any comparison going on, it wasn't done to justify himself. It was done to condemn himself. He knew his condition, so he didn't ask for justice. He asked for mercy. And notice he didn't try to cut a deal with God. He didn't offer to clean up his act if God would be merciful to him. He didn't even promise to try harder if God would just forgive him. He wasn't thinking that far ahead. All he knew was that he needed mercy. Now, some, I'm afraid, do have the idea that they have to put themselves on a road to recovery before they can come to God and ask for mercy. That they have to get their act together and put together a a detailed plan for improvement before God will help them. They believe the verse of Scripture that no one can find, because it's not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Some even take that kind of thinking so far that they refuse to be baptized until they have proven to themselves that they can live a Christian life. Talk about getting the cart before the horse. 
You can't live a Christian life until you've been cleansed of your sins and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us after we stopped sinning. Now, it is true that once we find mercy, we will change. A genuinely changed heart will inevitably lead to a changed life. But the change comes after mercy, after the gift of forgiveness, not before it. Now, Jesus did conclude the parable before painting a picture of this man's changed life. But in the very next chapter, we'll meet Zacchaeus, another tax gatherer, and he will definitely make some dramatic changes in his life after finding acceptance from the Son of God. Jesus does, however, tell us that the publican in the parable went down to his house justified. He found the mercy he had sought. He was made right with God. He was viewed by God just as if he had never sinned. I think I do need to point out, however, that he did not find mercy because he said the sinner's prayer. In fact, we are never taught, in Scripture at least, to say the sinner's prayer. That may surprise you. On the day of Pentecost, when those who had been pierced to the heart by the gospel message asked what they should do, they weren't told to repeat the sinner's prayer. They were told to repent. To make certain they wanted to change the direction of their life and to then be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They were seeking mercy, and they were told how to receive it. The guilt of their sins could be washed away in the waters of Christian baptism. Now, obviously, the publican in the parable didn't humble himself before God by being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ hadn't yet died, and Christian baptism hadn't yet been initiated as the means to share in the death of Christ or to bury self with him. But he did humble himself appropriately before God, beating his breast to demonstrate the anguish of his heart. And because he was willing to humble himself, God exalted him. Jesus ended the parable by saying that everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. The Pharisee exalted himself, thinking God had accepted him because he didn't sin the way others did and because he did more religious things than others did. But doing fewer sins than most, or more religious things than most, justifies no one. 
All it takes is one sin to condemn us before a holy and righteous God. And that means we can never think ourselves exalted in His sight because we live better lives than most or because we've done something that makes us appear to be religious. Neither the sinner's prayer nor baptism in and of itself saves anyone. The only way for a man to be exalted before God is to humble himself, to acknowledge that he is not worthy of forgiveness, but that he nonetheless longs for mercy. And then when God informs him through his word how to find that mercy, a humble man will do whatever he is asked to do. Not to earn God's mercy, but to receive it. It's my prayer today that all of us have honestly humbled ourselves before God. And that if there's anyone here today who needs to express that humility by obeying Christ in Christian baptism, they will do so. If you humble yourself, Christ will exalt you. He will make you a child of God. And that, my friend, will give you the best self-image any mortal could ever want. Christ receives sinful men and those who humble themselves before him will be exalted in his sight.